Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey, welcome back to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, your host. We're grateful you're spending some time with us. If you have been listening to Engage 360 and have subscribed to Engage 360 uh, for any length of time, you'll know that we've produced weekly episodes over the last year and a half. And we want to let you know that as we head into the holidays this year, we'll be adjusting our weekly release schedule and adopting a a new, somewhat less frequent cadence in this next season. Uh, If you'd like to stay up to date on when the new episodes drop, make sure that you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts uh, or whatever other platform you might uh, use. And you can always follow along on our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter platforms for announcements and content about new episodes. This revised uh, cadence or, or rhythm for Engage 360 is going to allow us to uh, run some episodes a little bit longer and get some wider exposure to those. So we're, uh, we're hopeful that this will be beneficial to you. Now, a few episodes back, we had the privilege of interacting with one of our Doctor of Ministry students, John Allen, who has a fascinating story and set of experiences. John spent about 17 years, I think, in South Africa Uh, serving bivocationally as head of security for the Peace Corps and as pastor of an international church in Pretoria. And John is back in the States now, still overseeing security for the Peace Corps internationally and in some capacities also providing leadership for the congregation in Pretoria as well as one in Congo, I believe. And so I'd encourage you to go back, if you have not heard his previous interview, go back and listen to episode 57, and you'll get the fuller story. But we've asked John back for kind of a part two conversation, because in that first interaction, he made reference to some subjects that are so thick that we need to explore them further, do a bit of a deeper dive. John, um, welcome back to Engage 360. Well, thanks, Dr. Payne, for having me. We are calling me yeah, we're we're really it's really grateful you could carve out some time for us. John is joining us from the from Maryland, but the Washington D.C. area. Okay, John, I'm going to uh, assume that everybody has uh, listened to our previous conversation, and again, encourage them to do so if they haven't. But in that conversation, you mentioned that one of the things you learned from your years in the African continent is that Africans have the ability to have the hard conversations. I remember that comment you made. Um, because we were, you and I were talking about uh, what we in the U.S. need to learn from them, particularly when we in our country here are in such a time of division and turmoil. So you said Africans have the ability to have the hard conversations. I want you to tell us more about that. What did that look like? Well, uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Payne, for the question. I... I, as you said, was in uh, Africa uh, serving and ministering, working for a number of years, and I had an opportunity to not only serve as a pastor and minister to the congregation and get to know that congregation, but in my uh, full-time work (coughs) with the uh, volunteer organization in which I was a part of, I had an opportunity to travel extensively throughout the continent, getting to know people in a very, you know, sort of intimate, personal way. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, I, I was just really taken away by their 
level of resiliency uh, and their ability to be able to call things out and, in a sense, do the heavy lift or the hard work uh, toward uh, reconciliation. Yeah, and and as anybody who keeps up with uh, international affairs at all would know, there's some some difficult stuff that keeps going on in a number of the African countries. Uh, lots of conflict, uh, civil war, uh, tribalism, lots lots of stuff that I mean, this is not petty or trivial conversation, right? That is correct. I mean, I can uh, count uh, just numerous uh, incidents that happened during my tenure there as pastor of the congregation uh, that I was tasked to serve. Uh, there was there was always, and I hate to use the word always, uh, maybe I should say periodic, uh, xenophobic uh, clashes and incidents in the country of South Africa alone, where you have this sort of melting pot from the diaspora of people who have migrated uh, to that area for uh, better living conditions and, and uh, 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 educational opportunities, both for themselves and their, their children, uh, only to be told that uh, because of your presence, you're taking away jobs that belong to South Africans. Oh. I, uh, so you, I often had to uh, kind of set the tone uh, with our congregation uh, as it related to what was going on outside of those doors, many of those individuals in our congregation were directly impacted by xenophobic uh, backlash or violence. Um, there were situations where uh, congregants would come forward and, and share what was going on in their own countries. I mean, you alluded to that earlier. Uh, some came with a lot of baggage. They were in South Africa as refugees. Um, I recall situations where I had individuals from Zimbabwe, and it was during a period of time where uh, the president at the time was doing a huge uh, farm grab, land grab, and many of uh, the Zimbabweans were fled to South Africa for refuge, and the same in the Congo. And I can give other examples. So privileged to be able to lead a multinational, multicultural uh, congregation and gave us a uh, up-close view of what was really happening in the lives of the congregants. Hmm. I, I know that hard conversations always have a cultural form to them. Every, every culture has its own way of having certain conversations. But I'm, I'm curious what that... Uh, what, the, what that looked like, even though in South Africa, particularly in such an international environment where you had, had folks from other African countries coming for refuge, and, and, they're, and they're bringing their own cultures into that culture, mm-hmm. how did you navigate those conversations? What, what did they look like? Well, I, you know, that's a good, very good question. You know, at, at times we would have... Um, situations that that there were there would be no obvious uh, outward maybe discomfort of the tension that would that would that would exist between the various groups uh, and that kind of spoke to the cultural norms uh, in Africa where uh, there's a tendency to be conflict averse or hmm. uh, conflict avoidance uh, 
but it, it, it pushed me <clears throat> to, in a sense, hear more from individuals. I gave an example in our last uh, exchange, Dr. Payne, regarding uh, what was going on in Rwanda with yeah. the Tutsis, the Hutus yeah. uh, culture, uh, when they they were going through their own genocide. And, and uh, one of the sort of, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, a message I got from one of the Hutu uh, members and families of our church, and this gives an example of how you could miss it, you know, because there's no outward showing. But when I asked this individual who was from Rwanda, which tribe did it belong to? And I remember him saying, because uh, he was very active in the music ministry of the church, he says, Pastor, I'm uh, the, the, the Hutu uh, culture. And when he said that, he expressed some level of embarrassment, and he wanted to make it clear of what his position was and his role and, or lack of role. And so it, it, it was a conviction to me. Uh, to get back to your question, it was a conviction to me as a leader and as a pastor to pay close attention and be on the lookout for, uh, you know, potential conflict or unease that might exist under the surface. And I can give other examples of how we were able to detect that and to navigate that. But but it, it really does uh, it push you to, to a point where you want to listen. And uh, some of those... Uh, uh, unspoken, <laughs> and if I can use that uh, that mm-hmm. phrase, mm-hmm. Uh, outward expressions of discomfort uh, that 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 might be a uh, connection to the tension that exists. Yeah, I think we'll we'll want to hear one or two of those stories to really, uh, you know, put some flesh on that for ourselves and help us maybe translate that into some things we're dealing with here in in this culture, but. I can hardly imagine, you know, when you when you mentioned that in our first interview, that you had um, you had from Rwanda, Hutus and Tutsis, both coming into your congregation. That's hard for us to fathom. What I mean, for anybody who knows anything about the uh, the Rwandan genocide, just that un, unspeakable slaughter that took place in what was that the early mid nineties. Um, how how in the world or what in the world was that like for you to sit and listen to their stories when you've got believers in the same church from these two tribes who were who were at each other like that? What was that like? It it wasn't an, an adjustment for me. I had never uh, pastored uh, a multinational, a multicultural congregation. It pushed me to to places that I didn't know existed within me. Hmm. Uh, give me an example of uh, a story by one of the Tutsi uh, women in our church, and I, I won't give her real name. Um, she sort of pushed this genocide to the forefront. It was one thing for me to ask about the musician. Uh, the, the, who was part of uh, the, the Hutu tribe and get his information. But but I, I think it was the Tutsi, uh, who was the my, part of the minority in Rwanda, who was who, who faced the brunt of that genocide, as you, mm-hmm. as you kind of alluded to earlier, back in 1994, over a period of about 100 days, 800,000 to a million 
Tutsis and others uh, sympathizers were were slaughtered, uh, mutilated. Yeah, uh, it's public. It was just a just a tremendous uh, situation. But this particular woman that I wanted to raise her story, she was uh, married to a Hutu, and in anticipation of her of his death or his murder during this genocide, her husband uh, gave control of his assets to his family. And he implored to them to look after his family in the event of his death. Well, after uh, Marie's uh, husband's death, the in-laws, they abandoned support. And they banished her as a widow and her two children from the family home. She suffered sexual assaults, uh, physical violence. She was left for dead. And she survived, and she migrated with her her children, eventually ending up in the refugee community in South Africa, and subsequently uh, she became a part of our congregation. But to get to your question about how do you navigate that space, I, I must say that that I I I think it starts with humility <laughs> and uh, uh, empathy. Uh, just being able to humble yourself to a space and place where you're able to at least listen. Um, and, you know, there's always a, a tendency to say, uh, in a sense, that um, uh, suffering, your suffering is worse than mine, you know, that type of thing. We yeah. people have that tendency. Uh, but I, I, I've concluded that suffering or, and oppression is personal. And not to be ranked or compared from person to person. And when I heard her story, it brought me in. And I can give, uh, you know, just the kind of support that we were able to provide her and her her, her children uh, while in South Africa. It was complex, uh, you know, navigating uh, these two tribes and 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 uh, uh, addressing their issues. But we tried to set a platform. Um, that was able to minister to their untreated trauma, mm. because there's trauma on both sides. And so we, we tried to set a, a tone and an atmosphere uh, for the congregation to be open to each other's pain and each other's suffering. I'll give you an example, and I don't know if I'm talking too much here, but I... No, keep going. Would like, I would like to give an example with... Uh, Marie, the, the Tutsi, uh, who was married to a Hutu and, and migrated to South Africa after her husband was, was, was murdered. Um, in our congregation, we saw this one particular family uh, from the Tutsi tribe who, again, faced the brunt of, of the genocide. We watched that couple, that, that family within our congregation, and that mother suffered mental illness uh, due to her untreated trauma. There were times that uh, we see things being triggered, and and it was easy for folks within our congregation to say, "Wow, there's something wrong with that woman," and 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 to uh, isolate and create distance. But it was through uh, women's fellowship. My wife knew the full story of this woman, and she was ministering in a women's fellowship group with the church, and she shared. Marie's story of what she had gone through, her, her, her suffering sexual assault, physical violence, her, her desire just to survive. And when people heard 
Marie's story, uh, other individuals, especially women within the congregation, could both empathize, they could relate, and they started to share their stories of how they had overcome different uh, traumatic events, uh, different twists and turns in their own lives, and, and what an opportunity for that congregation at a deeper level to embrace uh, this particular tribe, but all tribes, <laughs> but this particular tribe who had faced so much violence and suffering in their history. Right. You know, when you, when you hear, when any of us hear stories like that that are so riveting, so visceral, uh, it, it really does have a tendency to, to put our own stuff in perspective and to give us a measure of, of freedom to let some of that stuff be known so that it can be addressed and, and healed and, and accepted. And that's, that's one of the, the benefits of that kind of experience that you've described. You know, what, what you've shared, John, kind of naturally raises this subject of forgiveness. And I want to explore that with you for just a bit because I'm going to make kind of a general observation here about Christianity in, in the U.S., or at least the Christianity that I'm most familiar with here in the U.S. When we talk about a theme like forgiveness, which is so prominent biblically, and our Lord Jesus makes such a, a big deal of that, uh, sometimes it's easy to, to think about forgiveness as a simple, one-time light switch, on-off switch affair. You know, you just kind of trip the switch, just you just forgive, and you go on, and it's like nothing ever happened. I, I pick up vibes quite often that that's what many people expect forgiveness to be, this simplistic uh, sort of one- or two-dimensional thing where you just, you just do it, and then you move on, and, and everything's okay. But what you're describing is, is so morally and existentially dense that I can hardly imagine what the process is like for Hutus and Tutsis to give and receive forgiveness. How, how did you talk, talk to us about that? What did, what did you learn about forgiveness? Uh, you know, that's a question with a lot of depth in my response. I, I, I hope, um, you know, one thing I, I come to know is that true forgiveness happens. When it happens, it, it's not rushed. It's uh, not coerced. It, 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 is, it is usually as a result of some meaningful, honest uh, discourse. Okay. And, and um, it's, it's, it's more likely to be lasting when it's, when it's taken from that particular perspective, <laughs> when it's not rushed or coerced. You know, people on both sides of a conflict uh, who submit to the full process you know, of expressing and listening and allowing themselves to remain in that discomfort um, that comes with that, they are ultimately, you know, more able to enter into a relationship as opposed to just existing in the same space. Okay. Yeah, that's that's crucial. You know, and, and it's it's easy to say too, and it's uh, it's but it's beautiful to to observe, and I think 
that's been my takeaway in ministering cross-culturally. You know, I know that, um, you know, I always, and, and, and excuse me for being a pastor who, who, who's, who, who didn't have it right, you know, I thought. Yeah, you know, you, you know, you're the only pastor who who didn't get it right, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm taught the prayer, you know, the Lord's prayer, you know, forgiving others, and yeah. you know, others uh, uh, trusts and what have you, as the Lord forgives us, and yeah. I the forgiveness seventy times seventy, you know, that type of thing. But but I I I, I must say I thought that forgiveness would uh, everybody was owed forgiveness. And that's a misconception that I had hmm. that 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 everybody is owed forgiveness. Sometimes we forget that forgiveness is a gift, hmm. and that if you don't mind me saying this, Doctor Payne, I also thought that forgiveness was unconditional. <laughs> I mean, I grew up where you know it's just unconditional. Forgiveness is unforgive unconditional, but but recipients of it. Uh, the, the the folks who are offended, the, the the person who's been wronged, sometimes they need to hear acknowledgement and and sorrow from the perpetrator uh, or or even others. And I mean, even in our own history, as you you, you were describing earlier in the U.S. history of in, of enslaving, discriminating against Black Americans, yeah. you know, uh, people need to know that their hurt and their suffering is validated yeah. and that it's named and there's not a rush uh, to get through it. You know, you know, um, mm. you know, I could even talk about the witnesses and the bystanders. They also have a right to ask the victim about their stance on forgiveness. Yeah. Th- I think this is a perfect example of why w- we and the body of Christ overall, both, both here and in other places, need to have the patience to uh, to attend to this conversation with uh, with a lot of nuance and maybe some discomfort because if if I'm right in my previous thought that that forgiveness tends in many settings to be trivialized to be kind of a superficial thing uh, we we can superficialize it if that's a word in a lot of different ways uh, by saying, for example, well, just let it go. Just forget about it. But that doesn't own it. I mean, to, to your point, uh, I mean, the terms we use here can get a little slippery sometimes because I, it seems like Scripture calls us to be willing to extend forgiveness. But to your point, for a, re- a genuine reconciliation to take place, there has to be that reciprocity, right? There's got to That's correct. there's got to be that ownership, that naming, that of of the wrong. Um, so even if even if unilaterally, forgiveness is is extended, or if it's offered, it's got to be it's got to be picked up. It's got to be named, and or the the issue has to be named and owned. And that's not a simple one time thing, is it? That's I agree. Uh, I'm not trying to. Put, I don't mean to put words in your mouth here, but that's um, that. That's deep work. That's hard work. That's patient work. Um, and for those who, particularly those, whether it's here in the U.S., you know, with with enslavement, or it's you know, like Hutus and Tutsis, to simply say to somebody, "Well, let's just forget it and move on." 
that that glosses and almost what's the word it, it really trivializes uh, and diminishes the significance of the wrong that was done I, I agree I, I, I wholeheartedly um, I know that uh, in order for that forgiveness to be you know some level of truth telling mm-hmm. uh, must must take place uh, before reconciliation yeah. All of this reminds me of something that's so central to uh, our our mission, our ethos here at Denver Seminary. If you look at our mission statement, one of the central phrases is the redemptive power of the gospel. And that's a great phrase. I'm committed to it. We are committed to it. And, but when you put something like that in a mission statement and it can roll off your lips so glibly, I think it's easy for us to lose the um, the, the measurement of what really is involved in that, the redemptive power of the gospel. And in situations like you lived through there in South Africa, that's a, that's a stage on which you really get to see that played out in full force, the redemptive power of the gospel. And sometimes, I mean, I would expect, uh, sometimes that's kind of gritty, um, messy work to see the gospel powerfully redeem. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to put it? Oh, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I, uh, while I can give so many examples of that, it's, it's gritty, it's dirty. Uh, it's not to the eyes. Um, I'll go back to the Rwandan, um, you know, uh, young woman that I described earlier who, uh, had, the genocide only to suffer illness and, you know, do untreated trauma. Mm -hmm. There were times in our congregation where she would face this sort of xenophobic uh, backlash from South Africans. And, and, and I remember once that after a couple of weeks, she had gone missing, um, they had burned her flat, her apartment, uh, mm. due to xenophobic violence. And so um, someone in our congregation made us aware of that. And her children came to, to me to say, hey, m- Mama is missing. And she's been missing. And to find out, you know, when you're talking about the redemptive gospel, we took a copy of her passport. We enlarged the, the photo. Uh, we went to the police station that would not give uh, that Tootsie London fan respect, any any service, and looking for a mother who had been missing for a number of days. Um, and to be able to, to go into that situation along with others uh, with with a sense of looking out for the least and saying, hey, look, this person has been missing. Here's a photo. Here's a wanted poster that we've put together on her behalf and mobilizing that police chief and others within his station to be able to find this mother who was suffering uh, for a long period of time uh, back to safety. So that's just one aspect of it. Yeah, And I I could go deeper, but I'm, I'm trying to uh, paint a picture of 
the gospel, the gospel going outside of the walls of, of, of our sanctuary, outside of where we worship, to where people are in their mental state, uh, in their law state, um, in dealing with the society, the culture, and how they are viewed, um, and and coming up with a remedy of how this person can be redeemed. And I can give yeah. a, a great story about this woman, but I'm kind of going in that direction. Wow, I that's think, yeah. that is a that is a beautiful enactment of the gospel. Uh, where, where on, on on behalf of the Lord, you you pursued one who was in some ca- in this case literally lost. That that is, that that takes that phrase, the redemptive power of the gospel, out of the, out of the the easy vocabulary of the sanctuary, and puts it on the street. It's that that's why I call it an an enactment or an embodiment of the gospel. Which is far more difficult, isn't it, than than just talking about the gospel? Uh, in you know, in cultures where where some of that may not be quite as much in our face as it was there for you, it's really easy, maybe all too easy, dangerously easy for us to be <clears throat> verbally eloquent about the gospel, but never never really have to enact it in a serious way and all the while think we know the gospel just because we're able to verbalize it very crisply. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you know, I think, John, I think one of the the carryover or crossover points for all of this is that, you know, in that situation you faced, those probably multiple situations you faced in South Africa, you were dealing with the enactment of the gospel, the redemptive power of the gospel, forgiveness, the, the difficult work of forgiveness where there were clear winners and losers. We're not talking about trivial trivial matters here. There were winners and losers. And the gospel is the what is was the only thing that really could bind those folks together in one body in Christ through forgiveness when uh, some some were winners and some were losers. So as we're having this conversation right now, uh, we're in a situation in our country just after our national election where at least at some point things will be settled, at least as we're recording this. I, I guess that's still a bit in question in, in some circles. Uh, there's going to be winners and losers. Won't be, a, won't be a contentious campaign as to who's going to win. There's going to be winners and losers. And I suspect that the body of Christ is going to have to— at, in this country, at our own level, have to work through some of those same issues that you've so graphically described for us. Um, what, what do you think carries over? What do we have to learn from all this here in the U.S.? Wow. I mean, there's a, there are a number of things that I, um, you know, would say that in, in almost every story, you know, there, there's the villains. <laughs> who form some combination of, of uh, being the perpetrators, the enablers, yeah. or just apathetic. And then there are also those who are heroes who come in the form of resistors and helpers and healers. Uh, but at the end of the day, we were all fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, our identity, you know, as believers, um, 
rest in Christ. And when you look at the beauty of the body of Christ, it's, it's diverse. There's a range of opinions, and, you know, every perspective has uh, had impact. But at the end of the day, we are who we are in Christ, and, and to remember the, the love that we should show and uh, uh, the initiative that we should take to, to be that to be that. You know, um, that, that's not always that's not always easy. That's sort of God learned uh, in ministering cross culturally that we have the responsibility as believers uh, uh, to be to be heroes, and that and being the hero means that we are uh, the bridge uh, strengthens us and who is our guide and our Heavenly Father, who is our, our Creator. Um, it, it's it's going to be a, a challenging time for us, but we have, a, uh, we have the ability to show our own resiliency. I mean, the sheer power of human resiliency. Yeah, it's quite uh, remarkable. Our, mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is quite remarkable. It sure is. And uh, we have that that given to us to survive, living, to overcome. That's what I learned from the lost boys of this one lost boy of uh, Sudan who mm-hmm. migrated all the way to South Africa. Irrigation. He's a Tutsi, that I, a woman who I mentioned earlier, and her family, the uh, the Hutu family as well, and I can go on uh, with other various folks. Is that that? power of human resiliency and the will to survive, to keep living, to overcome, and to know that our identity ultimately is in our Creator, and um, and as a believer, it's in, it's in Christ Jesus. Yeah, well said. And and to see that, that power of resilience as itself a divine gift um, that God has given, that, um, that always points us to the gospel, and it, it reminds me of uh, something a well-known theologian said. I, I won't be able to give the exact quote because it's a little little too graphic for uh, for air for the air. But uh, I'll, I'll sanitize it a bit that that Jesus that at the end of the day Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else pales in significance. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's where we have to anchor everything. John, this man, this has been great. I I would love to. Just so many things I'd love to probe into you further with, like your just your view of vocation. I've always appreciated. We won't, we won't go there right now, but I've just always appreciated your integrated view of vocation. As I've heard you talk about the multiple uh, responsibilities the Lord has given you, you know, with uh, with the Department of Defense and with these uh, congregations, you at some level are still overseeing in South Africa and in Congo, and you talk about all of that as ministry, and that's that integrated view of vocation is something we we press really hard here at Denver Seminary, so I really appreciate that, and would love to chat with you further about that at some point. But maybe just for a, a moment to close out, we can just come up for air a bit. And <laughs> let me ask you something silly. What, while in your, in your uh, years there, what, what was your biggest cultural faux pas? <laughs> wow! Be honest now. 
<laughs> or if you can talk about it on the air, <laughs> what was your biggest cultural faux pas? I've made so many. <laughs> I've had so many. Yeah, where do I, where do I start? <laughs> right. Yeah, where where, where do I start? They uh, say in the greetings. I mean, uh, the, you know, in, in in Africa, they're so so gracious uh, in and um, giving you a pass and uh, speaking the language. So yeah. I, I got to say that you know traveling throughout the continent, and especially being a part of a congregation where you had folks speaking uh, different dialects and, and, and languages to be able to uh, at least show them that you're trying. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Americans tend to be very distant in that space, but if you want to really integrate and be a part of the congregants to get to know them in a very uh, intimate way, you at least have to do some small talk. And you got to slow down and, and get to at least make an attempt to learn the language. And uh, the greetings would probably be my uh, Okay, okay. <laughs> so like with any uh, cross-lingual experience, um, I'm going to guess that you probably said some things that were rather untoward or unseemly while you were trying to say something that- else. <laughs> That is correct. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Who hasn't done that with a, a second language that they really don't know very well? But it's uh, always good to see smiles on faces after you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Hey, we've been interacting with John Allen. Uh, again, this is part two, and we're so grateful. Thanks, John. This has been uh, just really enriching and, and challenging and and provoking and it's going to deepen us all we're we're grateful for your ministry there and for your time with us yeah this this has been engage 360 from denver seminary as always my name is don Payne, and we are really looking forward to having you back with us uh, next time we thank you and look forward to our next time with you take care